We are a little lighter, but um, you can be thankful for one thing. Uh, they were getting up at 7.30 for church this morning, so I'm glad to be here. Uh, a, a buddy of mine back in, in college, um, he actually wasn't in college with me. I just knew him back then, and I was uh, riding. He ha- always had a different perspective of things. And uh, he's, one day we, were, we had gone up for a rally. We were up in Minnesota, and, um, and we were driving around. And, uh, and he says, I've, I've discovered the secret, the, the center of the universe. I said, okay. Uh, the center of the universe is my car. And he says, I know this. He's, I said, he said, here's the logic. He, says, um, he said, I bought, uh, uh, I bought this compass, in my, and so it sits on the dashboard of my car. Now, he says, I bought it at Walmart, so I know it works. <laughs> um, and he's like, watch. He's like, so he turns the corner. He says, you notice that it always points north. I, I turn the corner, it points north. So he's like, what I've discovered is I somehow found the car and whenever I turn the steering wheel, what I'm doing is I'm actually turning the universe to fit my, to fit my car. So my car is the center of the universe, right? Uh, we have the ability to um, uh, over, let emotions overrule us. Uh, we, we begin this, this series talking about um, some of the, the ideas within Christianity that have been obscured over a period of time and um, how... Uh, we want to take the mask off of some of those. Not, not because some of the ideas are wrong that originally existed. We're not unmasking Christianity in that sense, but that we are taking kind of the mask that culture has given us or, or our misunderstandings have given us uh, and, and concealed what God originally gave. Um, and so sometimes our emotions become a fixed point for us. Uh, and, and so I have this, this emotion, and that's going to determine my reality. But the problem is, is that my emotions turn here, and they go off this way. And, and so what we do, much like Ben, uh, Ben Lorenz, my friend, uh, is we turn our world suddenly to, to match my emotions. And, and we know that our compass is good, right? We, we know that our, our, my heart is right because I bought it at Walmart. No, uh, because I just, it's my heart. And, and I, I trust everything my heart says, right? Just go with your heart. Uh, so imagine for a moment a paradox within Christianity that would compel a religious scholar studying underneath that system to conclude that a book of the Bible wasn't inspired. What would that make you think of, of that particular person? You, what, what kind of a, a Bible scholar would, would deny that, that a book of the Bible was actually inspired? Now you'd not probably think too highly of that man, would you? A, person, a, a personal viewpoint so strong that you can dismiss objective truth. That is a strong compulsion. We're going to get to that guy in just a second. I want to talk about a slightly different dilemma. Last week we talked about grace and law, and we saw how, in reality, those two things aren't contradictory. And what we're going to see is, is through all of these, we kind of get this paradox. We get this feeling that, that 
this is saying this, and, and sometimes this seems to be saying this, and we, we wrestle with it, and we, we put it together in the wrong way for whatever reason, whether it be culture or, or whether it be our heart or whatever we're trying to guard or protect against. And we, we put and reconcile these difficult things in, in maybe an incorrect way, and then that's where a lot of the original Christianity that God designed gets masked. Our, our topic is connected to last week's discussion. I said it was a big discussion. You could have a whole series just on grace and law and the, the things connected to it. We're talking about today, uh, and I concluded uh, towards the end uh, of last week's message, talk about we're going to broaden out on one specific concept within grace, and that's how grace operates. Having settled the issue of whether we are under grace and law and and how uh, how God has designed a system of grace to replace a system of works or a system of law, we're going to talk about the operation. Um, and we saw a different type of comparison last week. Last week we saw a comparison where we took one passage in Romans that was very cut and dried. You are not under law, but under grace. And, and then we saw a contrast with a different uh, scripture, which was kind of, it had a lot of working parts, you know, to the, the passage in, in Matthew chapter 5, talking about um, how, how uh, well, until the, the end of the world, until heaven and earth pass away, these aren't going to, to, to leave. The law's not going to leave. It's not going to be taken out of place until it's all fulfilled. And there was a lot of little working parts in there. And it, but these are, we're going to be looking at two scriptures that are almost identical, yet seem to be opposite. So let me read these uh, very quickly. We'll go back in Romans, of course. When, when there's a confusing passage in the New Testament or a confusing topic, you can be sure that we're going to be, at some point, reading Romans. Um, and just It's a very, very difficult book. Um, it's a very rich book, but it is difficult. So Romans and uh, chapter 4. And we're going to be reading the first five verses, Romans 4, 1 through 5. He says, what shall we say then? That Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh. If Abraham was justified by works, he's become something to boast about, but not before God. For what does that scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Uh, so we're going to, I'm just going to rip off a piece of my paper here because I need a bookmark. We are going to come back to this passage. So I now have my bookmark. We're going to now turn over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 and verse 21, beginning. James 2, 21 through 24. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Hello. (laughs) 
James and Paul seem to need to get their story straight. Because we're talking, I mean, the similarities be, be, between these two passages. We're even talking about the same guy. It's not, you can't even say, well, he's talking about a different guy. And this, this. It's the same guy. They're quoting the same Old Testament scripture in terms of the, the reference to Abraham being justified by faith. And they're coming to what looks to be an opposite conclusion. Paul says, Abraham is not justified by works. And James says, so we see that Abraham was justified by works. <laughs> that doesn't seem to be a whole lot of... I mean, how do you get these two verses on the same page? Well, there's a lot of ways that we can reconcile this passage, or these two passages, these two ideas. Excuse me. And so sitting in his study, a man by the name of Martin Luther wrote and said that James was an epistle of straw. He was a little bit younger when he wrote that. He concluded that James was not inspired. That James maybe shouldn't be in our New Testament scriptures because it obviously contradicted Paul and a number of statements that Paul made. But this, most, this troubled Martin Luther the most. Well, he did backtrack from that, and we should give Martin Luther credit. Later on in life, he backtracked off of that statement. A lot of people don't do that. A lot of people, they've made a statement. It's published. It's out there for everybody, and I'm sticking with it. Um, but he didn't. But I don't want to talk about, really, Martin Luther this morning. I want to talk about the Scriptures, and I want to talk about the relationship of faith works, and how both of these passages are a part of our scriptures and how they both are trying to, just as we saw last week, they're really trying to get to the same point. They're just expressing something a little bit different. They're looking at a different picture. It's like that, that story about the, the blind men that are told to, to identify what they feel, and they're, they're trying to identify an elephant, and one man's holding on to the trunk, and he says, ah, it is, or onto the, onto the, yeah, he's on the trunk, and he says, ah, it's like a snake, and another man's holding the leg, and he's like, ah, it's like a tree, and, and it's all these different things. It depends on what kind of, what portion of our incredible faith that we are describing, we might describe it differently. So I want to first talk about flaws of logic before we, we get going. Um, and I want to talk about a specific flaw that, that happens a lot, and that is called accepting the premise. Um, so often when we debate something, we, we have a discussion and there's a difference of opinion, people focus on a minor detail. And in focusing on a minor detail, the detail should come at some point, but in focusing on this detail or on that detail and trying to, to debate over a detail, what we end up doing is allowing the larger premise. For example, if uh, uh, oh, there's two people arguing over something that should or shouldn't be done, this person thinks that a Christian should do this and, uh, or, or should be okay, and this person says, no, it shouldn't. And they'll, they'll argue over 
over this. And one of the arguments that the person, let's say that the person that thinks we should be free to do it, will say something like, you know, you say that I shouldn't do X, but you do Y. You know, you do, you say I shouldn't do this, but you're doing this and it violates, you know, the same thing you're, you're trying to say that I shouldn't do. And what this actually does, this is a mistake. In debating, this would be a mistake. And it's wrong. See, what I've just done, if, if I hold that position, what I've done is I've allowed the premise that X is wrong. See? So what I've really said is, okay, I'm wrong, but so are you. I've allowed the premise. And so often people in, in heavier discussions allow the premise that they should not allow. From the early 1700s, I, let me, I know I kind of went off here a little bit. I'm going to get back there. From the early 1700s, there has been a confusion of faith and works. And much of it has centered around the topic of baptism. Revelation 3.20, we probably have heard that used. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens, I will come in and sup with them. And that has been used since the early 1700s to justify a thing called the sinner's prayer. And prior to the 17, 1730, there is no reference anywhere to any such thing as the sinner's prayer. And it was taken from Revelation 3.20. Well, well, context is important, right? In the context of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, he's talking to people who are already Christians. It's the, the church of Laodicea. And he's telling them to repent. This was the lukewarm church. It's the last church he, he has referenced in these, among these seven. And he says, you know, unless you repent... You're going to perish. He's, this was one of those churches, the, the lampstand. He's, he just says to the church of Laodicea, I write. These are people who are Christians. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 has nothing to do with people becoming a Christian. It has to do with people who are already Christians returning to their first love. And we can understand that. Pretty simple. So, when we get to the discussion of baptism, one of the things that many people have done who understand the significance of it, run to James chapter 2 and say, well, see, faith and works. It's important. Baptism is important because you can't, faith has to have works. And what have I just done? I've allowed the premise that baptism is a work. And I'm telling you that James chapter 2 was written to a church of people who were already saved. James chapter 2 is not about baptism. Not any more than Revelation 3 is about a sinner's prayer. Neither of them are talking about the subject of how we enter into salvation. They're about a different topic. So do not allow the premise. Once you turn to James chapter 2 to talk about baptism, you have allowed the premise that baptism is a work. And then you've lost the debate. Baptism is an important topic, but that's not what this is about. 
Another flaw of logic that I, I find a lot is how exactly people are quoted. In trying to prove something, we will often selectively quote somebody and not quote them quite correctly. We'll take a, a piece of it. You see this all the time around you. People will take a little bit, a little snippet, and support something. Because I can take this little bit and make it look just a, well, this person, faith without works. Faith, faith alone, whatever. We, we, just, we just quote a person. So let me read you a quote. See what you think about this quote. To put on Christ according to the gospel means to clothe oneself with righteousness, wisdom, power, life, and the spirit of Christ. By nature, we are clothed in the garb of Adam. This garb, Paul compares to the old man. Now, before we can become children of God, this old man must be put off, just as Paul says, in Ephesians 4.29, but the garment of Adam must come off like soiled clothes. Of course, it is not as simple as changing one's clothes, but God makes it simple. He clothes us with righteousness of Christ by means of baptism. Do you agree with that statement? Sounds pretty good. Sounds like I could write it. Martin Luther wrote that in his commentary in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. When Martin Luther wrote about faith and works, he did not identify baptism as a work. And yet for a couple of 300 years, people have been using an out-of-context quote from Martin Luther to justify an entire branch of Christianity and the sinner's prayer. Because faith alone, because baptism is a work. And no, <laughs> baptism has never been a work. It's not a, it's not a work in James chapter 2. And even, even Martin Luther, who almost dismissed the book of the Bible, recognized that. He never wrote against baptism. Now, this is not a sermon about baptism. But I wanted to illustrate something. How we get to these ideas about things and, and as we justify this and as we argue for this and over years of, of arguing this way and that way these ideas of, of faith get a little distorted and get a little twisted because we think I have to hold this ground and, and any verse I can use to try to hold and protect this ground is okay and so this person uses faulty logic and this person in response to that person uses faulty logic and we're just what are we doing? So we want to strip away and we want to look at some things. We want to look just at the relationship of faith and works. But before we do so, I want to explain a little bit about Martin Luther. When he wrote about faith and works, we need to understand the context within which he lived and what he was writing about. Martin Luther, I said this wasn't a sermon about Martin Luther, and I'm talking a lot about him. Martin Luther was a Catholic monk. 
And he was raised in an era where works saved you. Not baptism. I mean, they, they taught that baptism was necessary, but that's not what he was talking about because he was baptized as a baby. So he's not talking about that. He had already accepted that concept as, as necessary. Martin Luther thought he would be saved if he slept on a cold stone floor. Martin Luther, every night, or maybe not every night, but frequently, he had a whip that all Catholic monks of the time had, like a cat of nine tails. And he would whip himself to punish his flesh and try to earn his way into heaven. Martin Luther grew up as a monk selling indulgences, which was basically if you gave money to the Catholic Church, you could buy your way out of the worst part or lessen your stay in hell. And little by little, he saw that this came into contradiction to what the passages in the scriptures were talking about how works could not save you. He was not going to be saved because he hurt himself and because he slept on stone or because people gave money. That was not going to save you or do anything for you. That's what Martin Luther's works were about and nothing else. Again, that context is important. Now, I'm not going to say anything about Martin Luther for the rest of the sermon. Let's look at the relationship between faith and works, because it's important. As we analyze these two passages, Romans and James, we need to make an important distinction. Even even almost identical passages can have some nuance to them that a slightly different perspective. Yes, we're talking about the same man. Yes, we're even quoting a same scripture from the Old Testament that Abraham, that his faith was accounted for righteousness. But within James's reference and Paul's and Romans, they're identifying different events in Abraham's life. And that's kind of important. So let's turn to Romans chapter 4. And let's look at the context. Actually, we're going to back up into chapter 3. Remember that there's no chapters originally. This is all one continuous stream of consciousness writing. So chapter 3, the end of that, is going to supply the context for chapter 4. And I want you to look at verse 28. Beginning of verse 28, well, verse 27. He says, Where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what law? Of what works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is he the God of Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles, of the Gentiles also? And then so so he's setting up the idea and he's talking about a specific set of works. This is called the works of the law. We have a tendency to try, when we're trying to, to make the, the, the Bible in our language and common using what we think are synonyms, right? Uh, and, and so we look at works and we interpret that as the word actions. 
And so baptism is an action, and so by extension it's a work, and so we shouldn't, that shouldn't be a part of the salvation process. That's the logic. But it's not, it's a little bit more complex than that. He's talking about a specific set of works that are called the works of the law. He's talking about the things in Moses. The ceremonies that were required, the offerings that were required, all those things. He's not simply saying actions are unimportant. That's not, that's an oversimplification and it will lead us down the wrong path of logic. He's talking about the works of the law. Let's go down a little bit and look at chapter 4, verse 13. Still all in the same context. He says, the promise that he would be an heir of the world was not to Abraham or even to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So he's talking about this promise that was made to Abraham. You're going to become the father of many nations, and, and through your seed the whole world's going to be saved. And he's saying, it, wasn't, it came through Isaac, but it wasn't, it wasn't genetic that this salvation came. It had nothing to do with the, the laws and all the things that had to do with the genealogies and all that, is it became through the concept of, of the promise, the promised Savior which, which came into the world. And spiritually, that went to everybody. It had no, no connection to your genetics. You're not saved because you're Jewish. Right? That was their idea. God spiritualized everything. It wasn't, a, it wasn't connected to the works of the law and to circumcision. And so he's referring to the promise of Isaac. Abraham trusted the promise of Isaac. Right? And that's what, that's what Paul deals with. Romans chapter 4, verse 10. Still, again, in the same context. He says, how then was this accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. In other words, this promise, if you go back and look at the quotation, it was accounted to him as righteousness, came before Abraham was circumcised and then circumcised Isaac. That was when God gave the promise. So what he's saying is, Circumcision was a work of the law. It was, a, it was an action, yes, but it was more than that. It was a requirement of Moses' law. And Paul is trying to get, Paul's point is, is to try to get people, just kind of like what we talked about last week, I told you it was connected, that, that God is trying to get people off of this idea that we are better and closer to God because of a system of rules that we feel are in place. I've done this, so therefore I will be saved by God because look at how good I am. And I've followed Moses' law. I've been circumcised. No, he said God gave that promise and Abraham trusted the promise before God told him to circumcise Isaac. And that's where really the roots of Moses' law began in circumcision. And so we confirm our point last week about the law. 
But I want to turn to James chapter 2 because this is interesting. In James chapter 2, and we're going to read what we read already, and I'm going to actually read a larger portion because it brings out another detail. So let's back up to verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and that by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He was called a friend of God. So you see then that a man was justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, he then gives another example. So let's read that one too. He says, likewise, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the spies and sent them out another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so then faith without works is dead also. So we see here that in both the case of Abraham and Rahab, neither one of these events are referring to their actions that were done, but they are not works of the law. In Abraham, he identifies a different example of an action. He doesn't refer to anything Moses commanded. He refers to the sacrifice of Isaac, which had nothing to do. It was just a, it was a, a direct requirement. God spoke to Abraham separately and said, please offer your son to me. And he trusted it. We go back to that story and he said, uh, we remember him going up the mountain and they, they, he leaves the servant and he tells the servant, wait here, the boy and I will return to you. <laughs> wait a minute, you're going to sacrifice. Yeah. Hebrews points out that God was trusting that he could raise him from the dead. He had confidence in God. He had faith in God. And that work, that action saved him. He's not talking about a work of the law. Rahab, there was nothing in the law about Rahab. There was, what Rahab did was before the law was given. Not long before, but just shortly before. So Moses' law can't save me. We talked about that last week. These works that James refers to are not works of the law, but they are obedient actions. And those are necessary for salvation. Baptism could be summed up within that, but it is not a work of the law. That's not what James is talking about even. So I want to talk then about the importance of works. What it does, what it doesn't do. We're going to come back to James. And I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 and verse 8 beginning. It says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, or else someone would boast, or 
lest anyone should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In math, I learned a thing called order of ops. I was not good at math. And uh, my teacher, I, I remember in calculus, I liked calculus, I just stunk at it. And um, I, I love math. I wish I was better at it. But my teacher, I remember him saying, all of your calculus mistakes are not calculus mistakes. You're all algebra mistakes. Everything you do, you're doing your, your math in the wrong order. If you would follow your signs the right way, you'd, you'd have the right answers on all of these things. And I almost failed calculus because I goofed off in ninth grade algebra, which is why. Right. But, but this interesting order of ops was you know, pulling this out of parentheses and all the things that just it kind of got fuzzy for me. And Ephesians is about our order of ops. Actions are important, but actions aren't going to save me in and of themselves. The, the idea that I'm, I'm saved because I do this or that, that's, that's not what Jesus is. The, um, you are saved, you are created in Christ to do good works. The order of ops. <laughs> the salvation comes first. The works come second. Remember, baptism is not a work. That's not in this discussion. We are created first to do second. So now let's go back to James chapter 2 and verse 19. This to me is the linchpin upon which James rests. If I had to pull out a passage, uh, a verse or two, to sum up all of James... If you've read James, you're familiar with the different things in it. It's, it's a simple book. It's not complex at all. It's hard in one way. Practically, it's a hard book. But verse 19 and 20, to me, sums up all of those topics. He says, you believe that there is one God. Whoop-de-doo. That's modern English. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish Galatians, or excuse me, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Paul used a similar phrase, do you want to know, O foolish Galatians? It was, a, it was a way, do you want to know? O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. <laughs> The premise of James is that intellectual faith is wonderful. But unless it is practically applied, it is useless. You are created in Christ to do good works. James 2, 19, 20, and Paul's statements in Ephesians and in Romans are the exact same statements from a different perspective. Looking at different events within Abraham 
No, the letter to James is not an epistle of straw. It is an incredibly substantive book. It's, it's, it's not straw. It's, James is a, an epistle of gravel and steel, if you want to get right down into it. Oh, it's not doctrinally deep. It won't. If you love philosophy, James is not your book. But it says you can't confess God and say hurtful things to your brother. You are created in Christ for good works. You can't have the half without the other half. It says you can't hold on to God unless you're willing to release your wealth for others' benefit. It says that I can't accept God's grace and deny other people their opportunities at the same grace. I can't praise God and dishonor people. I can't be lifted up by God unless I'm humbled first. I can't be friends with the judge and show dishonor to other people who are the accused like I am. (laughs) There's no straw there. There's nothing easy there. We are saved to do good works. Read James and read all of the works that we are expected to do. You won't find any laws. You'll find actions. You'll find obedience in response to grace. So I ask you to leave here today with some steel, with some grit. To know the type of actions that justify, that that credit you with righteousness. They're not rules. Rules won't do anything for me. And they might keep me safe here and there. Rules don't commend me to God. Yes, we need to intellectually accept God. Yes, we need to begin our faith the way God asks. But we need to leave as and live as people who understand the type of works that justify me. Abraham was justified by works. And think of it this way to have a different philosophy. What James and what Paul are both saying is a simple phrase, and, 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 and leave here and think of this, or two phrases, actually. Faith works. It does. Faith works. And someone told me this. The way Christianity works is this way. You have to change your mindset. And this is what I leave you with. To not think of Christianity, to not think of what is in our New Testament from the perspective of I've got to. Think of it from the perspective of I get to.
I don't got to. I've got to go to church. I've got to do this, and I've got to do that, and I've got to. That's rules. That's rules talking. I've got to. But grace says, I get to.